0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Our King and Savior, draweth nigh. O come, let us adore Him. Heavenly Father, we pray Thee. In the name of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, that Thou wouldst pour out Thy Holy Spirit upon us to guide and direct our thoughts and the meditations of our hearts, that we may receive the truth of Thy Word, and the faith of thy church within us, that it may take deep root and bear forth much fruit. And this we pray, in that name which is above all names, the name of Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, I hope you remember everything you learned uh, last time. Uh, because today we 're going to be building upon that, and that 's why it's so important to do your very best ahead of time to schedule these classes into your uh, into your books um, your calendars so that you can be here because we 're always building and it does slow down the class a bit if people are asking questions you know because they weren 't there the last time and so hopefully you remember some of the things that we we talked about. So we're going to see, when we are discerning as Anglican Christians, when we are discerning something theologically, where would we begin? Holy Scripture, absolutely. Uh, in, with Holy Scripture, Anglicans, as Anglican Christians, we hold Scripture in the place of primacy. We look to Scripture first, and we're going to unpack that a little bit more so today. Then secondly, where Scripture is not abundantly clear, um, what do we turn to then, to help enlighten us in our interpretation of Holy Scripture? Tradition. Holy tradition, which includes what? The church fathers. Holy tradition includes the writings of the early church fathers and mothers particularly where they speak with one mind, but it also gives us insight where where they don't. Because sometimes on things where they disagree, we can say, ah, you know what? Maybe it's okay that Christians disagree on this uh, today uh, uh, when we look at something. That maybe, uh, you know, there's a, a bigger point here. So the writings of the early church fathers and mothers, but particularly where they spoke with one mind with one voice with one heart for the gospel what's another part of holy tradition formularies no well i mean you can make that argument but that's that's uh, I didn't hear what you the, said. the formularies the, creed. the creeds right the creeds which co- which attaches the councils so the ancient councils uh, there are seven ecumenical councils, in particular in Anglicanism. There's an emphasis on the first four councils of the early church, but the writings of the early church fathers, the ancient councils, the creeds uh, of of the church. Um, what's something else? Well, that that would be a writing of one of the early church fathers, but that does give us good insight. I hope you noticed, however, that... Um, that Colin Buchanan and I would disagree on the emphasis of, of that. He mentions the Vincentian canon. Not completely in a way that I would, uh, would agree, I, 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 although he's much more intelligent than I am and much more articulate than I am and has actually written something, and I haven't. Um, I would say that my interpretation is better um, in all humility, uh, but he does mention that. But that's part of the w- reason I assigned the book is because I think it's a fabulous book, but there are things in it that I disagree, so it gives you another perspective. But another thing would be the worship of the early church, the to look at the liturgy of the ancient church, because in the early church, how Christians worshiped expressed and gave life to what they believed. okay? Uh, and so to look at the ancient liturgies is is very important as well for our interpretation. And then thirdly. Um, And it's in this order. Scripture holds primacy and is really the authority. Tradition helps us to interpret Holy Scripture in places where it's difficult to understand or places where we need to go more deeply. But then thirdly, and this can't be in contradiction to the first, uh, first one or the first two, would be, Bob? Formularies. Yes, very good, Bob. The Anglican formularies. Does anyone remember... What comprises the Anglican formularies? 39 the 39 Articles of Religion. Ordinal. And the
1: 1662 Book of Common
0: Prayer. The, yes, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer and the 1662 Ordinal, which is the ordination rites, including the preface to the ordinal, which we cited last time and I sent to you in the notes that you should have uh, received uh, by email. Okay. So, that's the brief summary of last time, and so now we're going to to move uh, um, from there, building upon that foundation. We talk about the primacy of Holy Scripture. What does primacy mean? First. First and foremost. It doesn't mean only, okay, but it does mean first, okay, and how you work that out, in one sense, Holy Scripture is, for the Christian, the only source of, uh, of doctrinal authority, in one sense. But in another sense, it, it holds the first place, okay? And so we're going to try uh, to wrestle through that a little bit today. We hold the primacy of Scripture. Well, this is where we very much differ with one of the other fellowships or branches of the historic Catholic Church. Now, when I say Anglicans are Catholic with a big C, it's because um, one of the definitions of Catholic with a big C is the historic undivided church. And because we have maintained and continue to celebrate and proclaim and live out the same orders of ministry, sacraments, faith, uh, and scriptures as that undivided church, we are a fellowship of that big C Catholic church in the contemporary world. Okay, is everyone with me on that? Okay, so we are Catholic with a big C. And unfortunately, there are many Anglicans who don't want to make that claim because um, they uh, they don't want to be confused with the Roman church. And what I would say is, well, then what we need to do is recapture that term and educate people uh, on that. There are three primary fellowships of the once undivided big C Catholic Church, Anglicanism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Roman Catholicism. Well, one of them, I'm not going to tell you which one it is, but the Pope is the head of this one, Um, one of them teaches that tradition, also called the teaching magisterium of the church, meaning the Roman church, is equal to Holy Scripture when it comes to defining dogma. Now, this is one of the big, big differences. It's easy when people say to me, oh, you're, you're Anglican, you're like Catholic light. Oh, I don't like that. <laughs> Uh no, we are Catholic. We're heavy cream, man. Okay. Um we're not we're not light anything. Um but uh but one of the people will say, well, isn't some of the differences like the Pope, you know, or your priest can marry? Uh well, yes, that's that's true. Whereas one woman years ago said to me, Oh, you're Anglican. I said, Yes, yeah. she goes, Oh, I'm I'm Catholic. She meant Roman Catholic, of course. And she said, "Isn't one of like the big difference between us is that you're for divorce and remarriage?" And I said, "Well, we're not for it." I said, "We we don't encourage it, really." I said, "But we we do believe that there are some biblical exceptions, and and we do respond to people uh, pastorally if that's what you mean. But it's not like we say to someone." How long have you been married? Oh, 25 years. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. Why well, You should get divorced and remarried. It's permissible, you know. So it's not that we're for it. Um, but anyway, um, one of the real big differences, I mean, things like whether clergy can marry, um, that's a disciplinary uh, canon of the Roman church. Even the Pope says that can change. He's saying it's unlikely that it will in the near future, but it can change. It's not, where something like the Creed, the Trinity, our belief in the Trinity, cannot change. Okay, so even Rome does not claim that the celibacy, mandated celibacy for bishops and priests is uh, unchangeable. So yeah, that's a difference, but it's not as big as, as some others. One of the big differences is that they do not hold to the primacy of Holy Scripture. For them, tradition is equal to Holy Scripture. In case you think, well, Father Michael, how do we know you're right on this? I have brought the catechism of, this is a misprint, they meant to put the Roman Catholic Church here, so it's a, this is a misprinted copy. Um, anyway, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the uh, second edition. I'm sure once I write Benedict and tell it, point this out, there'll be a third edition. But anyway, um, uh, I'm going to read from the uh, Catechism. This is the uh, the newest edition of the Roman Catechism. And this is under... The Relationship Between Tradition and Sacred Scripture. It reads, quote, Two distinct modes of transmission. Sacred Scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. We agree with that, Right? That sounds good. We like that so far. Okay. We're with you. Continue. All right. And holy tradition transmits in its entirety the word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits, it transmits it to the successors of the apostles so that enlightened by the spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad by their preaching. Now we're saying, well, no, we might have to unpack that a little bit. We'd agree with that to a point, but, you know, it depends what you mean. Well, they go a little bit further. As a result, the Church, to whom the transmission and interpretation of Revelation is entrusted, quote, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Mm. Thank you for clarifying. Mm-hmm. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. No. <laughs> That would not be the patristic position, okay? No, I can't. I just, <laughs> I just closed it. Uh, let me, no, it's okay. Let me. Let me find it. Page twenty-six. What, what is the section number with the uh, number in it? Um. Well, there's an eighty-one and an eighty-two next to it, and a one-thirteen, and it's on page twenty-six. Under Article Two, of the transmission of divine revelation. Now, like most things, it's not black and white, right? I mean, we could sit down at table and, and try to work this out. But this clearly does say that tradition is equal to scripture. And for us, that would not be true. As a result, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted, that is what God has revealed, has been entrusted to the church, we agree with that, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from Holy Scripture alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Now, tweak that a little bit, we can accept it. But it's a big little bit. (laughs) Okay, there. Um, In that what we would say is that saying does not lend itself to be kind to the primacy of Holy Scripture. We say, as opposed to that, um, in the 39 Articles of Religion, quote, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, That it should be believed as an article of the faith. So it may be believed, but not as an article of the faith. Or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. Okay, That's what we mean by the primacy of scripture. Along those lines, I would like to quote, if I can find it quickly here. I'm sorry, I should have had it um, prepared. This is from St. Cyril of Jerusalem. St. Cyril of Jerusalem, one of the early church fathers, he writes, With regard to the divine and saving mysteries of our faith, that is the Catholic faith, let it be known that no doctrine, however trivial, may be taught without the backing of the divine scripture. For our own saving faith, so that, what, that part of our faith which is necessary for salvation, derives its force not from reasoning, but from what may be proved out of the Bible. Good Anglican. Ah, Okay, St. Cyril of Jerusalem is saying, look, yes, the church helps to interpret Scripture correctly. Yes, God does speak through the body of Christ, but Scripture holds the place of primacy. Rome is saying, we can require something as a matter of faith that is not specifically in Holy Scripture. That becomes very dangerous. Now, the next saying I'm going to say is is probably not very politically correct or ecumenically sensitive, and probably, I'll admit, a bit extreme. But if you take that to the extreme that's the same position as Mormonism. That, in other words, we can add something that's required for you to believe that isn't in the Old and New Testament. Okay? That becomes extremely dangerous. Okay? So we hold, as Anglicans, to what the early church fathers would say, and they would hold to the primacy of Holy Scripture. To the primacy of Holy Scripture. Um, questions about this in particular?
2: Would, wouldn't the
1: Roman Catholic position of being able to add to, of having tradition be on the same level as Scripture, mm-hmm. wouldn't that then effectively say that the Pope, as the head of the church mm-hmm. is equivalent to Christ?
0: Well, I mean, we could make that implication, yes. And they would say that, you know, one of the things that is not clearly in Scripture that is required of the um, faithful in the Roman Church to believe is that the Pope can speak infallibly on certain matters. Now, there's a whole criteria. It's not like anything he says is considered to be infallible. People misunderstand that. To be fair to the Pope... That were really the office of the papacy. There, there have only been two infallible statements in all of Christian history. Three, if you include Leo the Thirteenth saying, "I'm infallible." <laughs> so, so that would be three. But um, now, I would still argue that that's two too many, or three too many. Um, however, to be fair. Um, there's a lot of uh, Protestants, Evangelical, Charismatic Christians who will say that the Pope is not infallible, but that you know they'll say, uh, you know, to their pastor, oh, at 4:30 in the morning, the Holy Spirit told me X, and you better do it, you know, because that's what the Holy Spirit said. And so, you know, the problem with the before the Reformation, of uh, this historically is not true because the Pope didn't even declare it, Leo the Thirteenth didn't even declare infallibility until the late 1800s. But the joke is that prior to, the problem before the Reformation is that you had one person claiming to be infallible. The problem after the Reformation is that you had a whole lot of people claiming to be infallible. So, uh, um, but but that's an example, is that we would say, look, we reject the fact that um, Something can be required as necessary for salvation that is not clearly biblical. Uh, so that's one, one example. Joan?
2: Well, you know, in the Bible it says to Peter, you know, you are my, the rock upon which I shall build my church. But that means something to do with the papacy and Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah,
0: yes. It, it, you know, but then the thing that comes to my mind is the devil quoting Scripture. Not that I'm saying that the, right, 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 the, right. the church is the devil, but you can try to make the Bible support anything that you want it to. Yes. Well, let, let me answer that one um, in in particular. um, There is where Anglicans would look to tradition. Some of the early church fathers say, looking at that particular passage in Matthew 16, I believe it's verse 18, would say, look, when Jesus says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, the rock that he is speaking of is Peter. Some of the early church fathers said, no, the, the rock itself is the apostolic foundation and Peter represents the, the apostles as a whole, because he did emerge as kind of the spokesperson for them. Others say, no, it's, it's not Peter or the apostles themselves at all. It is actually their, the faith that's articulated in that, in that statement, that Jesus is the Christ. That's the foundation. That's the rock. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I tend to lean towards the, the latter, but um, Augustine himself comes out and says, um, "I used to think that it was that it was Peter himself, and uh, now I don't really think so. Uh, I I tend to also think it's probably, um, you know, the apostolic faith is the rock." You know, in actuality, I probably believe they're all true to some degree. In some ways, he is referring to Peter specifically. In another way, he's referring to all the apostles and their successors. In another way, he's referring to their, the faith as the faith. No matter what interpretation you take of that, that is a huge jump then to say that, that the bishop of Rome is the only true successor of Peter. Since Peter also... Um, Founded the church in Antioch, for example, since there's actually no biblical uh, proof that, that Peter founded the church in in Rome, although there is such proof that he started the church in Antioch, um, you know, etc., etc. And I would say in the early church, their interpretation would be that all bishops are successors of Peter and the apostles. It is true, as we celebrated on yesterday on Friday. Uh, at the daily mass we we celebrated the establishment of the patriarchate of Rome it is true that rome held a special uh, place of honor a uh, uh, pastoral moral authority in the early church um, and did claim a unique heritage to to peter in some ways but was considered first among equals in having a moral or honorary authority and not a jurisdiction over the the whole church Um, So, also what is forgotten is that if somehow this applied to Peter and somehow Peter, uh, um, this is only passed on from Peter to his successors only in Rome, they forget the very next couple of verses, which is what? Jesus shares the very central core of our Christian faith, that he will suffer and die and then be raised. Peter denies him, saying, God forbid, I won't let this happen. And Jesus says to him, get thee behind me, Satan, for you're on the side of men and not on the side of God. So here's the rejection of the very central doctrine, dogma of our faith, the death and resurrection of Christ by Peter, who is the mouthpiece here of, of, of Satan and flesh, and not of God. Just a verse later, by the way. <laughs> so, all right, your second question, and yeah, then Bob. Was, and Paulina. Well, all right, well, maybe ask Praveen <laughs> that later. Well, you can make that argument that if, if the Pope can speak infallibly and can articulate the tradition of the Church apart from Scripture, then his revelation is coming from Jesus through the magisterium as the mouthpiece. And the Pope is the mouthpiece for that. So he can share with you what God is saying. And so he becomes literally the voice of Christ on earth, which is one of the titles, by the way, that the Pope claims is the Vicar of Christ. You know, he is vicariously representing Christ here on earth. I would say, he yes, he is a vicar of Christ, I agree, but so is the church as a whole. We are the vicar of Christ. We are vicariously representing Christ here on on earth. Bob and then Paulina.
1: Um, Since we're talking about this subject, the Immaculate Conception, is that a position that one has to hold as a Roman
0: Catholic? Yes, it is. It was defined in um, 1850... um, uh, by Leo the Thirteenth, um, prior to the Vatican I Council, actually decreeing that the Pope is infallible, um, but was made as an infallible statement by the Pope, um, and it's required of the faithful to believe. And the dogma is actually that Mary was conceived in the womb of Anne, her mother. Kept free, not set free, which would be less problematic, although still a problem because to require it when it's not clear in scripture would be a problem, but, and because people as great minds such as Thomas Aquinas believe that she was set free and not kept free. But anyway, kept free from the taint of original sin. And yes, you must believe that as a a Roman Catholic. It is equal to the dogma of the Trinity. Uh, It's a must believe. And so that's an, a, a prime example of the lack of primacy of Scripture in the Roman Church. And this is really what I would say: clergy getting married, not getting married. Yeah, we 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 can work that out. That that that's not an issue. You know, even purgatory. You know, we we, we can work that out if they can just move toward the patristic definition of purgation. You know, and away from this idea of expiation being done for, for sins. Um, but this is a huge deal, and no one mentions this. But, you know, they, they might, in the sense that they, they reference the infallibility of the papacy. But the fact is that the patristic church would hold the scripture in a place of primacy and would say, as we heard from the voice of Cyril that nothing can be required of sal- for salvation that is not biblical. Um, and so that becomes a real issue uh, here. And the Immaculate Conception is, is, a, is a wonderful example. And as I said last time, if I come across Praveen, God forbid, hit by a bus and he has about 20 seconds to live, and he says to me, oh, Father Michael, I've got to admit, I'm not sure that Mary was taken up body and soul into heaven. I'm going to say, take it up with her when you get there. You you know what I mean? Um, While I tend to believe that personally as a matter of personal piety, it's not a dogma of the church because it's not biblical. And besides, how does that impact salvation? You you know? But if he says to me, um, you know, Father Michael, I'm not sure Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Houston, we've got a problem. (laughs) You know? And uh, um, and he's Apollo 13 in this in this instance. Paulina? I have a question regarding actually the Holy Scripture, how it was put together, it was and The actual canon, the actual list, and we're going to get into this probably later today. The actual, I mean this course we give two two sessions, we give two sessions for no other topic. <coughs> Holy Scripture gets two sessions and we still aren't going to get everything in. <coughs> it's just not possible. But the actual canon of the New Testament, which means the official list of the 27 books, exactly as we have them today, um, we don't see in any of the writings of the fathers until Athanasius, who was in the fourth in the fourth century, uh, for that exact. But we're going to get into that whole canon and and you know yep and and we're and we're going to get (coughs) we're going to get into all of that. Because there's two extremes. There are those who say, "Well, the church chose what books the Bible, so you know they they'll tell you how you, you know, what yeah, what to believe and not believe, and can add and subtract from them," um, which is a, a wrong extreme. And then there's the other extreme, uh, which I'm I, I I'm going to save for later, uh, where you know these evangelicals who kind of almost act like Jesus was uh, ascending into heaven and then said, oh, wait a minute, I almost forgot to give you, you know, a copy of the King James Version of the Bible leather-bound with my words in red. You, you know, and here it is. And, you know, neither extreme is true. So we're going to look at, at the truth of it. Bob?
1: The, uh, uh, it's just the, it's very much a side point, but this issue about the quality of magisterium with Scripture uh, continues the, uh, the debate within uh, Judaism prior to the destruction of the temple, uh, about the uh, equivalence or lack of it between the oral and the written.
0: Yeah. Torah. yeah. Uh,
1: unfortunately that makes us Sadducees.
0: Yeah, yes, yeah. In that in that instance, that's true. That's true. That's why we're sad, you see. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yes, Karen, and then we're gonna move on from here. It was saying that not everything that's required of salvation is found in holy scripture. But it was that salvation was uh, mentioned in that section. I, I'm just yeah, I, we're comparing apples. To apples, apples, to apples. Yeah. I'm not questioning. I'm just. We're no, 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 no. It's okay. As a result, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted does not. Re- derive her certainty about all revealed truths from holy scripture alone both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence i'd have to look um further this whole section here goes on about the magisterium of the church the heritage of faith entrusted to the whole to the whole church well here's one the apostles entrusted the sacred deposit of the faith contained in sacred scripture and tradition. So you see them two there. It's very two sources there, and they've said over here that they're equal to, to one another, to the whole church. By adhering to this heritage, the entire holy people, united to its pastors, remains always faithful to the teaching of the apostles, to the brotherhood, to the breaking of the bread and the prayer. So in maintaining, practicing, and professing the faith that has been handed on, there should be a remarkable harmony between the bishops and the faithful. And then it goes on to the um, magisterium. Um, Yes. Oh, they claim that. Yes. Right. And then I'm just saying, though, that what he's saying is it's
2: a... so. I guess by the associative property, you could say because because the Pope is saying it's as true what the Pope says is as true as scripture, and then now we say everything that's in scripture is necessary for salvation. So that that's how it makes its association.
0: I'm not following you. I'm sorry. Are we talking our position or theirs?
2: I guess I'm trying to put it in our position
0: but Okay. For us, tradition is a servant to Holy Scripture that helps us unpack and enlightens us in... and he's saying in
2: that is that it's it's a cer- it's a certainty issue about not a,
0: an issue of salvation. Okay. Well maybe in that one in in that one thing. But I can assure you that the Roman Church teaches that, um, that not all necessary belief is, uh, is scriptural. And a good example would be that it's required for people to believe in the infallibility of the papacy, uh, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, yeah, oh yeah, for salvation. Um, um, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, the Assumption of Mary, which I agree with personally, but I don't think it's a matter of salvation. And to this day, the Orthodox Church would not require even though everyone in Eastern Orthodoxy believes that Mary was taken body and soul to heaven after her death. OK? Um, it's still never been declared an official dogma of the church, because it's not clearly b- biblical where it has. So the real issue comes down to that if the teaching Magisterium is a servant of the Word of God, as it does say later, can it decree something as a must-believe if it's not scriptural? And that, and that really is, is, is the issue. So as an Anglican, I cannot require, if I believed, well, I do. If I believe that Mary was, and I'll tell you why I believe. I believe that Mary died, and I believe that Jesus came and took her body to heaven. Why do I believe that? Number one, I believe it because it's not contrary to the scripture. <coughs> Enoch was taken body and soul to heaven. Elijah was taken body and soul to heaven. And it's implied anyway that possibly Moses' body was taken as, as well. So it's not contrary to the holy scripture. Secondly, because it's not contrary, I can, I can apply reason here and say it would make sense that uh, the that the first tabernacle of God would be preserved and not see decay. Okay? So you know that 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 makes sense as, as well. But another big reason is that the whole of the early church believed it, east and west. Believed that Mary was was taken. So that's for me very strong. And then here's the real biggie for me that makes me believe it. My mother told me it was true. No, that's, not, <laughs> that's true too, but she told me the Pope's infallible too, and I don't believe that. But uh, this is why I really believe it. The early church was very much into relics, the bones of the, the martyrs and the saints, and there are no relics of Mary. Okay, um, Why? Because the church has never professed that, that Mary's body decayed. Okay, um, And so I believe it but I believe it as a matter of piety. As as a priest who serves in the Anglican tradition, I cannot require it of you to believe as a matter of faith. It's a matter of of pious belief, and we can agree with each other or disagree on that, and I really believe that if you disagreed with it, I'd be right and you'd be wrong. I really believe that. But I might be wrong. Probably not, though. But, okay, but I can't require you to believe that because it's not biblical. Our faith is, yes, Catholic, what was believed by the whole church, East and West throughout time, but is grounded in Scripture. We are the Bible Catholic Church. So it can't just be Catholic. To really be Catholic, it must be biblical as well. And so for us, there are things that the Roman Church professes that are by definition not Catholic, um, because they require that of of faith. So for us, tradition is not equal to Holy Scripture. We hold a place of primacy for the Scriptures.
2: Just one more thing. Um,
1: Regarding the infallibility of the Pope, Mm -hmm. uh, would that by implication say that the Pope is free from original sin? Because if he is not, then clearly he is sinful and therefore fallible.
0: Yeah, they would say that um, he's infallible. It's not anything he says; he has to speak. There is a criteria. He has to speak literally from the chair ex cathedra, and he has to be speaking something that the that the church, but for them, the definition of the church is the Roman Church, has accepted. As being uh, part of the deposit of the faith, and um, and so he can't just say, "I'm going to decree infallibly that although you think the sky is blue, it's really purple, and everyone from now on goes around saying the sky's purple." No, it's not. as blue. Shh. Purple. Uh, it's not that. It has. There has to be. But what we would say is, look, the problem with your premise is that. It's not biblical for one person to give voice to the to the whole church like that. It's not biblical um, to decree something that's outside of the Bible as being required of the faith. So, there's the whole premise is is problematic. So, he, but,
1: so he's infallible only so far as
0: he's he, speaking he's, for he the mind to, of to, the church. To, right. Right. So. That's why, I mean, there were some Roman Catholic theologians who were once calling for the Pope to make an infallible statement that he's not infallible. So therefore, they would never be able to get out of it. But the argument could still be made, well, but that's not an infallible statement, really. Because he, he was speaking as a person who had lost his mind, not as a person speaking for the whole church. And so the the real problem becomes that, what is the whole church? Yeah. Okay. Um, So, the big point I want to make is that for the Roman Catholic Church, scripture does not hold a place of primacy. Scripture and tradition are complementary and equal to one another. Rome has required things uh, for their faithful to believe that are neither clearly biblical nor received by the whole church east and west in the undivided church as being even implied by the Bible. Okay, Another example would be purgatory, for example, as a place that one goes to do expiation. because you, I mean, as you go because you have not done enough expiation for your sins. Even if we would say, look, okay, there's no place in the Bible where that clearly is stated, but it's implied in many places, and that was believed by the whole church east and west. Now you'd be on to something but that's not true. The dogma of purgatory as a place that one goes because they haven't done enough to expiate their sins was never received by the whole church east and west. Okay? Therefore, it's not tradition there can't be a lens that uncovers more deeply the truths within the depths of scripture. Does that make sense? Because it wasn't received by the whole church east and west. The east has never received the dogma of purgatory as it's understood in the West. But if you're going to get into purgation and sanctification even after death, then you have something to work with, with East and West maybe uncovering uh, the truths within the depths of Holy Scripture there. okay. So purgatory, infallibility, um, another example, transubstantiation. Not the belief that Christ is truly present. We believe that Christ is truly, really, Actually, present in the sacrament of his body and blood. Okay? Um, Transubstantiation, without getting too deeply into it, because we're going to have a class on this, transubstantiation is a philosophical argument um, brought forth by Thomas Aquinas based on the philosophy of Aristotle, okay, on how Christ is present. And that also is required of the faithful. The how he's present, where we say, "Look, you know, we believe he is truly present," but the the how that is is a mystery, which is what the word sacrament means in the early church—the seven mysteries. Okay, but they they say we've defined it, and you have to believe it as we have defined it, and it's based on Aristotelian terms, and we'll get into all of this. It has to do with the hylomorphic theory, and and all, all this other kind of fun stuff. What's that? Oh, okay, okay. The, yeah. <laughs> so, um, we'll get into all of that. So, for us, as Anglican Christians, like the patristic Catholics, okay, Scripture and tradition are very much related, but Scripture holds the place of primacy, and we will not require anything of the faithful that is not biblical, so we are the Bible Catholics. Okay. Um, unfortunately, I just got a thousand cards printed up, and it says Holy Trinity Anglican Church, and it was supposed to read the Bible Catholic Church in uh, in parentheses, and it just reads Bible Catholic Church. Doesn't quite get it, but it's a hundred bucks. So I'm not going to spend another hundred, um, and I can't prove that I wanted the, the there. So, uh, but the point was supposed to be is that we are the Bible Catholic Church. We believe the Catholic faith, that which is received by the whole church East and West, as grounded in the scripture, not just what's believed by East and West. Okay, where um, Now, Eastern Orthodoxy is a little bit closer to us, and you could probably work out the differences much more easily but what they would say is that yes scripture and tradition is very closely related and in one sense there's just really holy tradition and scripture holds the place of primacy within holy tradition okay that's we can work that out <laughs> okay we want to be a little bit clearer and say look no there's holy scripture right and then in a real second place and really not having an authority of its own, but helping us to interpret Scripture, is tradition. They would say there is holy tradition, and within holy tradition, Scripture has the first place. That we can work out. Uh, we're, We're much more closely united with them in that understanding. But for Rome, tradition and Scripture are complementary and are equal sources of divine revelation and they have required of the faithful things revealed through tradition that were not revealed through the written word. Okay, are we ready to move on? Everyone sees the difference between Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, and then those of us who have it correct? (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, as you heard, I mean, I only gave you one quote from the fathers and in one sense that's really dangerous because anyone can find a quote to back up, you know, what they want, right? But I mean, as you can see through Cyril, this isn't something that Anglicanism made up at the time of the English Reformation, okay? This is the patristic position that scripture holds a place of primacy, okay? So now we move, that's how we differ from Roman Catholicism and somewhat how we differ from the Eastern Orthodox position, though they are... Uh, You can almost argue that that's a matter of semantics. Maybe difficult semantics, but semantics. Now we're going to look, how does our position differ from most of our Protestant brothers and sisters? Okay, Most Protestants, uh, or more so Evangelicals today, would profess what's known as sola scriptura. What does sola scriptura mean? Yeah, only scripture. Scripture alone is how it's usually translated into English. Scripture alone. Okay. And so they would say, look, the authority of our denomination or the authority of our movement or the authority of our position, for our theological position, is scripture and scripture alone. We don't apply tradition to help us interpret scripture because scripture is... Uh, sufficient in and of itself, and is understandable to anyone who has the Holy Spirit. Sounds good. What's the problem with that? Translations. Translations is one of them. That's right, translations is one of them. I would say the only way you can get even close to holding that position is you would have to have the original texts in the original language understand that language and not only understand it on how it's applicable today, but understand what those words meant back then and understand all the cultural implications of those words back then. You know, for example, I'm, I'm trying to be a little funny here, but it, it really makes a good truth. Um, Fred and Barney, remember Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble? They're going to have a gay old time. Right? So if you, if you don't understand that, mm-hmm. if you're a child today and you hear that, you go, <laughs> how come? Because it makes a whole different implication. Mm-hmm. When we say the gay 90s, for people our age, we know that refers to what? The 1890s versus the gay 90s, mm-hmm. right? See, two very different usages of the word. If Paulina comes in and I say, Paulina, you look awful. You're going to say, Father Michael, that's a terrible thing to say. But you go back a couple of centuries, what was I saying to her? Yes, that she, I'm, I'm awestruck, right? Right? So if I say to Bob, right, you look terrific. How are you going to take that? If I say the traffic is terrific. So, you see how different that is? Okay. So, um, yeah, you'd have to understand the original language, but also what words meant, understand the cultural implications, to even get near the position that these people are hoping for when they read things in, in English. You know, <clears throat> So, they're saying anyone can who has, who has the, the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit can interpret Scripture. Yep. Scripture is sufficient for itself. Um, and it can be reasonably understood, and yeah how do
2: they determine that someone has the holy spirit
0: they do <laughs> they, they determine that I guess, and the problem with that throughout history is that you have as you know and Ken and Mark was making this point earlier this morning, and i 've made this point before too. You then have, let's say I say, well, I have the Holy Spirit, and you all agree, and you say, yes, he does. And so I start teaching, and you're all Michaelites, and then I say something, and and most of you say, ah, yes. But Bob and Susie and Praveen say, no, that doesn't seem right. And I say, well, it does, because I have the Holy Spirit, and Praveen says, well, wait a minute, so do I, and I'm telling you, that's wrong. So he breaks off, and he forms the Reformed Michaelites, Right? And Deacon Susie and Bob go go with him. Now you have the Michaelites and the Reformed Michaelites. And now Praveen is teaching and teaching and does for a Year and Susie and Bob are Bravo. We're so happy we're no longer Michaelites that we're Reformed Michaelites because Praveen is teaching the truth. And then Praveen says something that they say, Well, wait a minute, no, 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 no. Can you clarify that? And he does, and it makes it worse for them. But Susie says to Bob, No, I can kind of see what Praveen's saying. And so she stays, but Bob says, no, 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 I'm going to go out and form the orthodox reformed Michaelite church, mm-hmm. okay? This is the problem with sola scriptura. Now, in a sense, Anglicans can claim to hold to the position of sola scriptura in the sense that scripture is our only true authority and tradition is the lens, If think of my glasses as tradition, ah, that helps things, it brings out the clarity in scripture, okay? But scripture is the authority. In that sense, we hold to sola scriptura. Scripture is the authority, holy tradition is the lens that helps bring the clarity of holy scripture out. But because people mis- or use, not misuse, but use sola scriptura to mean scripture alone without tradition... Um, I tend never to use that term because I think it just misleads people. So one thing. So, what I would say is that we do not hold to sola scriptura unless you want to define that as meaning that scripture, because of its place of primacy, is the real source of authority and tradition becomes the lens that helps us to understand its depth and meaning. In that sense, yes, we're sola scriptura. But, I, but <clears throat> on the one hand, you've got Roman Catholicism saying that tradition and scripture are equal. Two ways that the Holy Spirit speaks to the church. And on the other hand, you have uh, the evangelical saying, no, scripture alone, and we don't need tradition. We don't need tradition. <clears throat> the Anglican position... Uh, is the via media, but it's the patristic position, the position of the early church, that says, um, uh, look, yes, Scripture holds the place of primacy, but holy tradition enables us to read it with greater clarity and to see into the depths of holy Scripture in a way that individuals could never do. Okay? Okay. Someone remind me after I take Emily's question to just give a quick uh, definition of via media since I use that term and it's very much used in teaching on Anglicanism. Emily. Well, the via media is the medium way, the way through the middle. right? <laughs> Not, well, that's how a lot of people think and it's sort of true. So that's why I'm going to define it. So go ahead. Would you, what's your... Nope. Wow, being the only... no nope. nope uh tradition continues today um people I believe three hundred years from now unless the Lord comes in glory before then people like michael ramsey uh people like c s Lewis, uh um, uh in some in some ways people like john stott um um, and maybe even to uh, s- some degrees, uh, even Benedict the Sixteenth himself will be seen as fathers of the Church someday. Dorothy Sayers as a mother of the Church someday. But their writings cannot contradict. It can be a new way of articulating it within our culture within our society, within the world as it's emerging today, but it must be in continuity with those who have come before them, and it cannot be in contradiction to the Holy Scriptures, uh, you know, in the mind of the, of the fathers of the early church. And so, yes, you can have tra- continuing tradition. Uh, tradition continues, uh, you know, to this, to this day. Bob? Um, Just simply, because that's a whole course and not one that I'm an expert on, uh, but simply put is that uh, culture obviously has an influence upon all of us, even in ways that we are unaware of, how we see things. There's all kinds of things that are at work within us, um, psychologically, emotionally, because of how we're informed by our environment and by how we were brought up. Someone is going to be probably... in one sense, may be less likely to be open to God as father if they've been beaten by their father, and may be more open to God as the father to replace their their fallen earthly father. But, um, but for us, culture does not mold and reshape uh, the gospel into its image and likeness, but rather the gospel is continually to call the new aspects of the present culture into the image and likeness of God. And so it certainly has an impact on us, but it's not supposed to recreate the the gospel, but it has an impact on us. Joan? It would appear
2: that we are acknowledging that, and I'm trying to word this carefully but it may not come out exactly right. That no, we are acknowledging that the early fathers, the writings of the early fathers in the formularies have a certain degree of power that an individual who believes in sola scriptura does not have. Mm-hmm. We're giving them, we're, we're acknowledging that there is some kind of a,
0: an authority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, it, is that correct? Yeah, through the consensus, through the mind of, of the faithful. Um, In other words, Scripture is not to be interpreted by individuals, but by the body of Christ, in continuity with the body of Christ throughout time, going back to Christ and the apostles. So you will see um, continuity between the Scriptures and Clement. Clement and Ignatius. Ignatius and Justin. Justin and Irenaeus. Irenaeus and, 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 and who's next? You will see continuity there. Well, certainly in one sense, it gives us insight into how the early church, those who were disciples of the very first apostles, how they interpreted scripture, how they understood the faith of the church. So in other words, if you're to say, well, look, uh, I'm a Southern Baptist, and for me, um, you know, baptism and Holy Communion is not that important. They're ordinances of the Lord, but they're not that important. Um, we would say, well, not only are they scriptural, but evidently they were extremely important to the earliest church. Because when we read the writings of the fathers, we see that the sacramental life was for them essential to who they were in Christ. Oh, there's people in the early church who who wrote against the the common opinion of of the those who were, uh, and when we get into the fathers, you'll see that there were some who there were minority reports always, um, you know, in uh, in the in the church. But the argument would be that you know, look, um, what we are. Irenaeus makes this position. What I am teaching, I received by those before me who received it from the apostles, who received it from Christ. These people are saying they know better in their understanding of the faith than even the apostles. So you have to choose whether you want to go with the the wisdom of man, these people are saying, or do you want to be in continuity with the apostles' teaching who received the word of God from Jesus himself. And that's the continuity that we have today. Okay, all right, Bob. And then I, I want to move us on because we we have so much, and what we don't cover. We won't be able to.
1: I don't know uh, much about various Protestant denominations, but do they regard? Do some of them regard that hold to the principle of sola scriptura? Regard the creed as authoritative?
0: Uh, yes. Yeah, there is. I mean, Lutherans, for example, will uphold sola scriptura, but they use tradition all the time in their understanding uh, of it. Methodists, actually, because they were founded by Anglicans, will, will cite, um, uh, you know, kind of a four-legged stool. Uh, um, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, um, uh, which may be a misinterpretation, but, um, but they, they will do that. And some will say the, you know, will say the creeds. But, you know, as you go more and more extreme, there are those who will say, well, we don't disagree with anything in the creeds because when you read the scripture clear as day, uh, the creeds would be a correct interpretation, but they're not authoritative for, for, for us. And in a sense, Anglicanism hints at that too in the 39 articles, that the creeds are to be believed because they can be proven by Holy Scripture. But in another sense as well, though, um, they give us insight on how to read Holy Scripture. You know, it goes, it goes both ways.
1: And if you take the latter, which is the viewpoint I, I take it as well, it's like it's a set of instructions about yeah. how to read Scripture. Looking at the, the, the fathers of the Church and, and holy tradition in that way, it, it really simply is another lens. It's another set of instructions about how to look At Scripture, and so I'm not saying they are equivalent in authority to the Creed, but they serve essentially the same purpose.
0: Who Uh, does say
1: that? The 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 Patristic.
0: Oh yes, yes, yeah, right, right.
1: They like it's. I'm not saying they're on the same level as the Creed or the same authority, but it's the same idea. We look to them to see how to look. Uh, scripture.
0: Yeah, how to, how to look at scripture and, and what are the boundaries of orthodoxy. Because, you know, remembering that it, it, the boundaries are meant to set parameters around mystery in which we can dance. They they just want us in the ballroom, not in the hallway <laughs> when we're dancing around, you know. And, yeah, and so a, a, absolutely, absolutely. All right, we're not going to make it through, guys.
1: Speaking of culture and I'm looking at
0: Yeah, I'm not an expert in that area, but go
1: ahead. It would seem to me that culture doesn't really have an influence on Anglicanism, because as Anglicans, we believe only that which was accepted by the whole church, East and West. Mm -hmm. Clearly, massively different cultures.
2: Mm -hmm. It doesn't
0: secondary matters, though, I mean, how we worship. You know, the culture has brought in more charismatic-type music, contemporary, so many Anglicans worship in that way. But yeah, it can affect the essence of the faith. That that's correct. In fact, I remember when first dating uh, Christine, uh, she came to visit an Anglican church and was like, "You guys are weird. <laughs> I mean, you guys do a lot of un-American things. You bow to one another. You're kneeling to people. You're treat, you know, you're treating people are treating you the priest like you're some type of prince and blah blah blah." <laughs> yeah, and uh, so and you know she's like you're weird, you know, and she said you're just not American in your, in your culture. And I said, right. Because Anglicanism is not an American Protestant denomination. And our culture is not only global, but it goes back in time, not only to the patristic church and the apostolic church, but some of what we do goes back 5,000 years. You know? I mean, it goes back to the early roots of Judaism. So our culture is much more Catholic universal, and timeless than an American Protestant uh, denomination. Absolutely, it's a a good point. Okay, via media. Via media. Okay, what what do we mean by via media? Okay. A lot of people say, well look, at the time of the English Reformation, you had the extreme position of medieval Roman Catholicism, which was in error. Okay. And I think even a lot of Roman Catholics today would agree that medieval Roman Catholicism was in error. Okay? Then you had the other extreme of, of, uh, of uh, Calvinism and uh, more extreme reformers going as far out as the Anabaptists. Okay? And what they said is that to hold peace, to keep peace, they set sail to go right between the two. They said, let's avoid the extremes of Roman Catholicism and the extremes of Puritanism and let's set sail, set our course here, right down the middle, and that's the via media. That's what most people, including most Anglican bishops and priests and deacons, will teach what we mean by via media. Here's what I'm going to say. That's a load of hooey. If that's what we are, we're just a bunch of compromisers. Thank you, Henry Clay. And uh, we, you know, I really don't want to belong to something that's just a compromise. Okay? What I would argue, and by the way, I'm borrowing this from other people. I didn't come up with this. Okay? Um, I'm not that smart. What I would argue is that when a Christian sets course from where they are, to return themselves or the church to the faith and order of the patristic church under the authority of scripture, it's going to happen to take them between the extremes of the additions of Roman Catholicism and the deletions of Puritanism. Can you say that again? If a Christian church or province, let's say, set sail for the patristic church, meaning the faith and order of the early church under the authority of scripture, it's going to take you naturally through the extremes of both Roman Catholicism on the one hand and Puritanism on the other hand. So it's not that we set out just to find the compromise. It's that the goal was the early church under the authority of scripture and that happened to take us through the waters of the via media. Do you see the difference? It's a very important difference. One says we we'll make our settings. You know, I'm a big Star Trek fan. <laughs> Mr. Sulu, prepare to set coordinates. Yes, Captain. What coordinates? Whatever the compromise position is. Yes, sir. Can <laughs> he plugs them in? We've set we're setting sail, sir, on a compromise direction. Well done, Sulu. Okay? That's not what was the intent. Okay? This is the intent. Mr. Sulu? Yes, Captain. Set sail for the patristic church. Yes, Captain. Coordinates, Captain. Primacy of scripture (laughs) and early tradition. Yes, sir. Where will that take us, Mr. Sulu? Right through the Via Media Nebula, sir. (laughs) Okay? And off they went. So do you see the difference there? One, we're just a bunch of compromisers. Hey, let's keep the peace here. Let's not get upset. Okay? Everyone, calm down. We can find the middle way, right? The other is that we have a principle, and the principle is the faith and order of the undivided church under the authority of Scripture. I would like to think that we belong to the latter and not the former position. So in... Regards to Holy Scripture, Anglicanism, because it is patristic Catholicism, or the Catholicism of the early church under the authority of Scripture, holds Scripture in a place of primacy. Tradition is subject to Scripture, and it is the lens which helps, uh, helps to bring clarity out of Holy Scripture when it is less than clear. Okay, It gives us insight into how the faithful in every age have interpreted uh... holy scripture okay so a lot of people will talk about in anglicanism quoting richard hooker and they misquote him about a three-legged stool and one leg is scripture and the other leg is tradition and the other leg is reason and you sit on this stool and you got this firm foundation for your fanny okay um, that's not that's not richard hooker Okay. Um, It's more of a tricycle. Did anyone have a tricycle when you were little? What did you have in front? One big wheel, but to help balance that one wheel, what did you have? Two smaller wheels, okay? And that's tradition and and, and reason, which we don't have time to get into, okay? Um, But that helps balance it. So the Sola Scriptura people, they're doing the unicycle. Okay, not well balanced, okay? Then you got the Rome, Roman Catholics and they're on, you know, a 10-speed bike, boldly going where no man is supposed to go. And we're on our tricycle with our little English bow tie <laughs> and, we're, and we're riding along down the Via Media, okay? So we reject on the one hand sola scriptura, at least as it's typically defined, Okay? And we reject, on the other hand, any hint that tradition is somehow equal to holy scripture, and that we can require something of the faithful to believe that's not found in holy scripture all right now i'm going to read from this book right down the middle,
2: that's kind of a misnomer a well, that's
0: what i said' it's, it's, it's not going down the middle of anything. That, was, that, that that's my whole point. It happens to bring us in between those two, but that's that's in the irrelevant happening. I mean, the real thing that's going on here is that we are setting course for the patristic church under the authority of God's word. Okay? And it happens to bring us down that center way. But this idea that we're just uh, the compromising church, you know, the balance, you know, is, isn't uh, very good. So this is a uh, a book uh, called Anglicanism, the thought and practice of the Church of England illustrated from the religious literature of the 17th century, compiled and edited by Paul Elmer Moore and Frank Leslie Cross, which I know you're all thinking, yeah, we know the title, we read it this morning for breakfast, okay? Um, However, I wanted to quote uh, for you from from this, see Moore and Cross, page 89. Okay, we'll read that more or less. Moore and Cross a hard crowd. Okay. Um, Here's from Richard Hooker. Here's from Richard Hooker. Okay. Very important. Richard Hooker was one of the English reformers um, and uh, perhaps among the English reformers had the most or almost the most uh, influence over Um, our identity in the post-English Reformation, okay? Here's Richard Hooker on Scripture as the rule of faith. Scripture as the rule of faith. Two opinions, therefore, two opinions, therefore, there are concerning sufficiency of Holy Scripture, each extremely opposite unto the other and both repugnant unto the truth. So he's saying, look, there's two positions that regarding the sufficiency of Holy Scripture, is Scripture sufficient for, for itself, and both these positions are extreme, and both of them are repugnant to what the truth is. The schools of Rome teach Scripture to be insufficient, as if, except traditions were added It did not contain all revealed and supernatural truth which absolutely is necessary for the children of men in this life to know that they may in the next be saved. Is everyone following me? So he's saying, number one, one theory regarding the sufficiency of scripture is that it's not. And that's the position of Rome. That the scriptures do not contain everything that is necessary for one to believe in order to be saved. And that's wrong. Okay? Now, I do want to say, since we're being recorded, um, Roman Catholicism uh, um, offers the world in many ways uh, a wonderful uh, gift. Um, there is a great love and appreciation for the sacraments, um, there's clear positions uh, um, that are patristic in morality regarding the sanctity of human life and, and other things. But yes, there are things that we believe they have added to the Catholic faith, which are by definition not Catholic. So, uh, you know, I don't mean to come across like they're all wrong and we're all right. Okay? Um, uh, you know, they are a fellowship of the Catholic Church, but There are some issues that I think are serious issues, and that's why I'm Anglican, because I was in the Roman seminary uh, for two years and fell in love with the Scriptures and the Fathers, which I then found incompatible with what the Roman Church was teaching in some cases. And in fact, I had a, um, a Roman Catholic spiritual director who said to me once, his name was Father George, I won't say his last name since we're being recorded, but he said to me, he was uh, uh, living at the seminary, and he was my spiritual director, and he said to me, Michael, you're in love with everything that's... Ang- uh, every- yeah, no, yeah, he said that. With everything that is Catholic, you're in love with the sacramental life of the church. You're in love with the, the Word of God. You're, you're in love with the creeds and councils and go on and on about the Father's. You're in love with everything that's Catholic. But anything that's particular to Roman Catholicism, you have a hard time with. Which means you're really either an Eastern Orthodox Christian or or an Anglican. And I I was just astounded. I was like, I'm going to report you to the papacy. That's what I'm going to do. You're in big trouble, buddy. I, I mean, how could he be saying this? You know, it was just crazy. Um, years later, by the way, um, uh, a priest's mother died, and I went to the uh, wake. And as I was going out, you know, we went by, and I was walking down, and he was sitting uh, the last chair uh, off the aisle. And you know, you can't really, you know, in this atmosphere, some wakes you could, but in this atmosphere, I couldn't be like, "Hey, Father George!" Hey, hey, you know. So I just kind of went by and smiled at him, and he grabbed my jacket and kind of pulled me. And so I bent my ear down, and he said, told you. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway. Um, yeah, and so, you know, uh, you know, we can have a respect for much of what Roman Catholicism offers, but we have to, you know, as Bible patristic Christians, um, we hold to that which is truly, by definition, Catholic. And as you'll see when we get to reading John Jewell, he would say that, we are Catholic, and they are that and then some, but not in a good way. Uh, Bob, was it? I
1: was just going to say, I think one of the things that makes Roman Catholicism attractive is that organizationally it seems iconic of the early church in mm-hmm. a way I think you don't see represented in any other mm-hmm. Stream that flows out of the early mm-hmm. church because there is an authority, and this is the way I think in yeah. which the Roman Catholic Church uh, is iconic of, of Jesus in some yeah. ways. There is an authority in the church when it speaks as a church where the yeah. people within it say, Yes, sir, yes, that's yeah. what you say, and what you say goes, yeah. Um, and
0: And many people in the world are looking for that right now, because the world is is very gray, and they want a little bit more black and white to hold on to. There's a priest, I won't say who, because uh, he may be listening to this someday, but uh, there's a priest in our diocese um, who told me that um, in his area, there are a lot of evangelical Christians. And he said a lot of them were coming to our church. And he said they'd become Anglican for a time. But because we were so low church and didn't emphasize our Catholicity, we didn't emphasize the mystery of the, the Eucharist as much, you, you know, we weren't enough for them. And do you know to whom we're losing them? Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. And he said, if, if some of my other uh, low church evangelical brothers don't, don't get this soon, you, you know, we're not going to be attracting people in. Because they're looking for the ancient church. And I agree, I agree with them 100%. Can I, can I read this and then we'll go to the question? Because I, I haven't been able to get through Hooker here, partly because of my fault too. I keep interrupting myself. But two opinions, therefore, there are concerning sufficiency of Holy Scripture, each extremely opposite unto the other and both repugnant unto truth. The schools of Rome teach Scripture to be so insufficient that's the word here, unsufficient. I would say insufficient, but... Unsufficient, as if, except traditions were added, it did not contain all revealed supernatural truth, which absolutely is necessary for the children of men in this life to know that they may in the next be saved. Others, justly condemning this opinion, so those in reaction against the Roman position grow likewise unto a dangerous extremity, as if Scripture did not only contain all things in that kind necessary, but all things simply, and in such sort that they do anything according to any other law, were not only unnecessary, but even opposite unto salvation. Unlawful and sinful... Whatsoever is spoken of God or things appertaining to God otherwise, then as the truth is, though it seem an honor, it is an injury. And as incredible praises given unto men do often abate and impair the credit of their deserved commendation, so we must likewise take great heed, lest in attributing unto Scripture more than it can have, the incredibility of that due cause, even those things which indeed it hath most abundantly to be less reverently esteemed. And he goes on from there. And so what he is saying is that the two streams must be avoided. One is that scripture is uh, insufficient, as he says, insufficient for um, uh, necessary faith in Christ for salvation. And on the other hand, if you can't find it in scripture, you know, then, then you know, uh, don't do it and it's sinful if you do. And, you know, Scripture doesn't say that either. Um, And that becomes a problem uh, as well and and leads to many different breaks. So that's the position of the primacy of Scripture. A good way I think about it, and I hope this is helpful to you, is the idea of holy tradition being glasses. You have Scripture. That's the authority. That's God's Word. But some things that aren't uh, clear as day you know, you look at it and go, what? What's that say? Now, people will say, oh, no, it's very clear. Peter himself, in the canon of Scripture, refers to Paul's writings as scriptural, but then what does he say about them? Hard to understand. Number one, they're hard to understand. So here's Peter saying, yes, Paul's writings are Scripture, but they're hard to understand. And because they're hard to understand, people have done what to them? Misinterpreted and twisted them. Okay? Uh, and so uh, we do have to have the lens of tradition to interpret. It brings out, it helps it bring it into focus. Joan? Well, then, just worry about the first part because it was more important. So, uh, anyway, do, do you mean the second part about what the the second extreme is? Yes. Oh, okay. You, all right, I can I can reread it.
1: I, I think so Hooker's language is just yeah. it's Germanic.
0: Yeah, well, it is, and he's like he's like See, Paul it's too. Gone
2: so long that by the time it got yeah. end, I couldn't connect the beginning to it.
0: You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) but by the grace of God. Um, All right, let let me reread the second part there. So everyone got the first part about Rome? Okay, so now the second part. Others, justly condemning this opinion, that is the opinion of Rome, grow likewise unto a dangerous extremity, as if scripture did not only contain all things in that kind necessary. So, in that, right. So, in that, not only do they say that all things are necessary for salvation or in Holy Scripture, we agree with that, but all things simply and in such sort that to do anything according to any other law were not only unnecessary, but even opposite unto salvation, unlawful and sinful, So therefore, anything that the church does, that whether, even if it's not for salvation, just anything we do, if it doesn't say do it in scripture, it therefore is sinful. It's wrong. It has to be biblical because you can't use tradition at all. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. And so, for example, the church has always, always, When baptizing, immerse the person or poured water over the person three times in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. This has come down to us in holy tradition since the age of the apostles, by the way. okay, That water will be poured or the person immersed into water three times. And this tradition goes back to the apostolic age and the church continues to do that today and we would say, look, we do that, why not just once? I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost because this has come down to us from the apostolic age and has been done uh, in the church in every age. Those who are in Sola Scriptura would argue the Bible doesn't say pour water three times or immerse the person three times. It just says water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Therefore, it's wrong to do the other. And we would say, no, that, that's wrong. The, the church does have authority, according to this uh, scripture, to, um, uh, how is it put, to um, articulate how things will be done decently and in order. So they would say, the scripture doesn't say you should wear colored vestments. Tomorrow, what color am I going to wear? Rose. It's a stretch in our set, but it's a it's a bit pink. But it's but I <laughs> yeah, that's it. I'm going to my my grandmother today. Her birthday today. She's been dead many years. Offered math for her this morning. Her name is Rose, so that that will be nice tomorrow. Um, but our set is um, well, it's pink anyway. Um, but I'll use Rose. They would say. Scripture doesn't say it, therefore, why, why are you doing that? You know, that's wrong, that's sinful, you, you know. And what he's saying, look, not everything that has come down to us within the life of the church is wrong just because it's not clearly in Scripture. We agree that everything necessary for salvation is in Scripture, but that doesn't mean there aren't things that the church can do outside of that that are secondary matters, okay? Okay. Um, uh, and of course the biggest example, but I don't want to get into this right now, is that nowhere in the New Testament does it list what the 27 books of the New Testament should be. Therefore, you know, those who would say, unless it's in Scripture, I don't believe it. Well, then the answer is, well, how do you know that is Scripture? It's only because the church has received this as the authority of God's Word written within its life. And once received, it became the canon, the measuring stick. From at, at the time it was received, it was received, one of the criteria was that it rightly articulated the apostolic faith. And then once the canon was uh, set, it becomes then the measuring stick for all the rest of eternity till the second coming of Christ of what's truly apostolic. Because what we do today is in continuity with the canon of Scripture, which rightly articulates the apostolic faith which has been revealed to us by God through Christ Jesus. Okay, but nowhere in the canon of Scripture does it say these 27 books are the only books of the New Testament. Okay, so it is, tradition does help us to know which books are the Word of God and which books aren't. And we'll get into that extreme in a little bit. I don't want to get off on that on that now. Anything more about not understanding what he said about the second one? Very helpful. Okay, good, good. Anyone else? Good. All right, praise God. All right, now we're going to get into what I was just talking about then. Good. The canon of Scripture. All right. So we're just going to look at the New Testament now. The 27 books of the New Testament, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Acts of the Apostles, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, right? The 27 books of the New Testament, okay? All right, so how do we know what is scriptural and what is not? What is the New Testament and what is not the New Testament? Well, there are two extremes to be avoided. One I'm going to call the Catholic extreme, okay? The Catholic Christian says, look the only way we know was that mm-hmm. No, I mean Catholic this yeah. is the extreme position within anyone who's Catholic Um, they would argue this would be the extreme Catholic position the only way we know what books are biblical is because the the Catholic bishops of the ancient church acknowledged these books to be biblical okay so apart from the church you don't know what the New Testament is. Okay?
2: So the only the books that were acknowledged by the...
0: By the ancient Catholic bishops, yep. The only way you know is by the through the Catholic Church. That lends to an even more extreme understanding that we decided as the Church what books were biblical... We can decide in every age how they'll be interpreted, and what's applicable and what's no longer applicable, which gets into an even greater danger. Okay, which actually springsboard out of the Catholic realm more so, but begins actually in a Catholic understanding, and you end up where the church is higher than the canon itself. Okay, not subject to it. That's one extreme in in Christianity, the extreme Catholic position. The church has decided what books are biblical. The other extreme is what I call the extreme evangelical position. And this is the one where I was jokingly saying that Jesus was ascending into heaven. Okay, he's going up and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Almost forgot. Here you go. Here's the Bible. King James Version, leather bound, my words in red. Maps are in the back. Comes with a concordance, okay? And these are the books. These are the books. No way! That extreme is completely historically inaccurate, okay? In fact, when um, the New Testament says that they're out proclaiming the gospel, gospel equals the good news of Jesus Christ Through the preaching of the apostles. In other words, the the gospel is the faith of the church, not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why? Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John hadn't been written yet. That's why. And when many of them are referring to the scriptures, most of the time, like over 90% of the time, when the New Testament's referring to the scriptures, it's referring to what we call the Old Testament. Okay? Um, so the first writings of Holy Scripture would not begin to be written, the first being by Paul, until almost a generation into the church's life, about 20 years, okay? Give or take five, (laughs) depending on which book you want to read about it, okay? So anywhere between 15 and 25 years after. So if I'm going to call a generation 20 years, Okay. Um,
2: Fifteen to twenty years after.
0: Yeah, crucifixion. The yeah, crucifixion. yeah. Crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord, and the descent of the Holy Spirit upon, upon them. Okay. So you have a whole generation where they're proclaiming the gospel, the faith of the church, the good news of life and salvation in Jesus Christ. And not a single letter of any letter, (laughs) epistle, of the New Testament has even been written yet. Okay? So that can right away do with the extreme, extreme evangelical position that many people hold that, look, you know, the New Testament was just given by God and boom, there it was. Because that's just historically inaccurate but neither is the extreme Catholic position accurate because really what happened, what did did Jesus give from the Father to his church, his body, his bride on Pentecost? The Holy Spirit. And the canon of Scripture was really a charismatic movement of the Holy Spirit within the body of Christ that the bishops and fathers of the early church affirmed. Okay, so... Okay, um, I'll try... The canon of Scripture really developed as a result of the charismatic presence and movement of the Holy Spirit within the life of the church. And the ancient bishops and early church fathers simply affirmed what they had received within the life of the church under the guidance of the Spirit. So the extreme that they chose it is too extreme. They really affirmed what the life of the church and the presence of the Spirit within the church had accepted as Scripture. So, on the one hand, it's wrong that Jesus gave us the Bible of the New Testament, and on the other hand, it's wrong that a bunch of guys sitting around in the room smoking cigarettes said, what do you think we should put in the canon? How about Mark? He's pretty good. Uh, I like Matthew. Well, put them both in. We can compromise on this. Okay? That's not correct either, okay? So what happened is almost immediately within the apostolic age, remember the apostolic age goes from 33 AD to about 110 AD, okay? So beginning in 50 and by 96 at the latest, all the books of the New Testament had been written, okay? And you already see Peter, one of the apostles, acknowledging the writings of Paul as scripture within the canon. And almost immediately, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then later, subsequently, John, is received by the whole church, the body of Christ, wherever it was in the world, as being the word of God. And then... Luke's sequel, *The Empire Strikes Back*, okay, known as *The Acts of the Apostles*, okay, um, Luke's sequel was accepted immediately by the faithful as being part of the scriptural canon. So you see how the two extremes are are untrue? It's not true Jesus gave us the book. Here's the list of the 27 books. All right, I don't really have a copy yet, but as they emerged, these are the 27 books I want you to go with. Not happening. Didn't happen. But neither did these guys sit around the room and say, this is what we choose. It really was the Spirit was poured out on the church, the body of Christ, and as these things were written, they were received in the church as being authoritative. The body of Christ was beginning to say, we recognize these readings as being the word of God and we submit ourselves to their authority. Later, the Catholic bishops will simply affirm what the church had professed. Now we're going to get into the exceptions in a minute, but is everyone with me so far? Do you see how the two extremes aren't really healthy ways of looking at it? Okay. Um, So, these books begin to be written. They begin to travel around the church and they're being accepted by the Catholic Church everywhere in the world. In Rome, in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Gaul, uh, all in, uh, in, uh, I already said in Ephesus, uh, in Thessalonica. They're being received by the faithful as being the word of God. And people were subjecting themselves to, to their authority. Now, along with this, another thing develops, and that is within the life of the church under the guidance of the Spirit. And that is a criteria for what is the Word of God and what is it. Now, what isn't doesn't necessarily mean evil, it just means not having the same level of uh, of divine inspiration as the scriptures, as the word of God. Part of the criteria is that the book has to be received by the whole church. And this was being developed in the apostolic age? Within the apostolic age, yes. It has to be received by the whole church. Okay. Um those who are faithful to the apostolic teachings, okay? Number two, they have to rightly articulate the apostolic teachings because it's going to become the measuring stick for every subsequent generation until the second coming of Jesus of what truly is apostolic. No? You want me to repeat that? Rightly articulate the apostolic teaching. Because it is going to become the standard, the canon, the measuring stick for every subsequent generation of what's apostolic. So if we, in 2011, want to know what is truly apostolic, we look firstly to what? The Holy Scripture. Because part of the criteria of those books being accepted by the faithful as the Word of God was that they rightly articulated the apostolic faith that they receive from Christ. So they were established in part because they rightly articulated the apostolic faith, but once they're established, they become the measuring stick for what's apostolic and what's not. And then the third criteria is that they are written by or in the name of one of the apostles. Which would include the 12, and then um, Paul. So, written by or in the name of one of the apostles of the church, so that it truly is apostolic. Okay. So, here would be the difference of somebody writing in the name of someone and someone. Who, um, uh, is, um, who is not. If Bishop Harvey is a great theologian in the apostolic age and he teaches me as his pupil the faith and I write a book, The Theology of Donald Harvey, okay and it's received by other pupils of Donald Harvey as rightly articulating the faith of Donald Harvey, then I have written it in his name. You with me? If I write a book, okay, in my own name, giving my interpretation of the theology of Donald Harvey and how it's applicable and have my own in there, then it's a book that's based on the theology of Donald Harvey. Do you you see the difference there? In one, I'm writing in his name. I'm, I'm really his scribe, in a sense. I'm putting to paper his theology, which he received from Jesus, let's say. Okay? And it's accepted by all the other pupils of Donald Harvey as rightly articulating what we have all received. But I put it to paper. That's different than my writing, okay, a book about him, and having my my own in in there, okay. One is his theology; the other is greatly influenced by his theology, okay. Um, so the criteria was that one, it's accepted by the church, those who are faithful to the apostolic faith, as being biblical. Number two, that. Um, that it uh, rightly articulates uh, the faith of the apostles. Number three, that it's written by or in the name of an apostle. Now, they're all interrelated, okay? You have to remember, our mind wants everything in black and white because we are contemporary Western-minded Christians, okay? But these things are all interrelated, but this was the criteria. All right. So, almost from the beginning, you have within this movement, hi Sandra, you have this, and what I just told you is um, divine revelation, uh, it's necessary for your salvation, you're the only one who know it, and you can't share it with anyone who's never heard it. Welcome Sandra. So, uh, uh, it's good to see you. How was your morning, ho, ho, ho? So anyway, um, uh, that's the criteria. Right from the beginning, there were some books that fit that criteria clearly and were received by the whole church, East and West, uh, were received as rightly articulating the faith of the apostles and were received as being uh, written by or in the name of uh, an apostle. For example, Mark writes in whose name? Mark wasn't one of the twelve. He's writing in Peter's name, right, and is accepted by the apostolic community as rightly articulating the apostolic faith as taught to him by Peter. Luke is not one of the twelve, but Luke writes in the name of the apostolic community, particularly Paul and somewhat Peter, and is believed by many scholars to also have had Mary herself as a source for the infant, uh, um, uh, infant uh, narratives, narrative in that particular case. Okay, so some. Bob? Quick question Is
1: one obligated to believe that the authors of the various texts of the New Testament are the authors who?
0: Church has nope. No, and the early church differed on this. Part
2: of that are the authors whom the church has. I wanted
1: to know whether one was obliged to believe that the authors of the texts in the New Testament are the authors as named by or understood to be the authors by within the
0: early church. And, and the answer is no. For example, there is a dispute uh, among many scholars and even among the early church fathers whether or not John, the apostle, authored the gospel according to St. John. Was it John, or was it the Johannine community, that is, the disciples of John, who rightly articulated the faith, they put to paper what John had taught them. Now, what the, that latter position okay, would be the minority report among the, uh, the early church fathers, um, either way, it's received as the canon by the Church. And it rightly articulates, um, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the Church received it as rightly articulating the faith of the Apostles. So, But one doesn't have to, you know, if, if again, the same bus that ran over Praveen didn't, went down the street and ran over Bob, and, uh, um, and I came to Bob, and Bob said, Father Michael, uh, I'm not sure that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Well, Bob, you better change your mind in real quick there, buddy, because you're bleeding out, <laughs> okay? But if he says to me, I think that perhaps John was written by the Johannine community in the name of John and received by the church canonically, as rightly articulating the theology as espoused by John in the other apostolic community. Really, Bob? That's how you want to spend your last words? Okay? <laughs> The first one's a problem, the second one the second one the second one isn't.
1: Because so. uh, uh, the, uh, the historical point is that the books actually don't get named. The Gospels books don't actually get named so far as we know, until the middle of the second century. It's at that okay. point where we start seeing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as uh, being the authors to whom these scriptures are attributed. So that that's where that
0: Bless this bed that I sleep on. Yeah. Okay. What were they called before that then? They ju- they didn't carry names. <laughs> yeah. And they don't the... just, just like verses. Yeah, I mean there weren't verses either. I mean, you know, and you know, punctuation and in and, and all of that, you know. Study I mean, Bibles. Yeah. Oh yeah, the study Bibles. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay. So uh That's why I say Jesus gave it with maps and a concordance and everything, you know? My words in red. Actually, when we have vestry meetings, I tell the clerk to record my words in red. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm just kidding, by the way, for those of you who take me too seriously. Um, uh, So some books emerged immediately as being, just were received, boom, as being canonical. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Acts of the Apostles, Romans, just received. Boom, 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 However, some books were received by parts of the church as being biblical, but didn't ultimately get received by the whole church as being biblical. A wonderful example of this is 1 Clement, which you'll be reading, by the way, in this course. But first, Clement was so highly regarded in the early church that in some places it was considered to be canon, to be the word of God, to be scriptural. Okay, Um, But ultimately, it wasn't received by the whole church as such. And the primary reason for this is that Clement does not claim to be writing in the name of one of the apostles. He claims to have received their faith and is articulating that faith, but he's writing as Clement, okay, uh, to the church in Corinth. So it doesn't necessarily mean that there's grievous errors in Clement or that Clement is, uh, is evil in some ways. In fact, I would say we should give it very high regard because it was so highly regarded by the early church that many people did consider it to be the word of God. So that's the lens I would read 1st Clement in. But ultimately, Clement was considered canon for a time and parts of the church, but ultimately, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, was not received by the whole church as being canon. Another book that had some dispute was Hebrews because the authorship was more uncertain okay um, yeah i I love Hebrews, I love Gentiles too, no kidding the, <laughs> Uh, I love everybody, okay? But I I love Hebrews. It's hard for me to imagine it not being in the canon, right? But because it's authorship, uh, some attributed it to Paul, some perhaps to Apollos, they believe, some to others, they weren't sure. But ultimately, it was received as being written in the name of the apostolic faith and was received by the whole church. And it made it. But there was some dispute Another big one was revelation, which is not revelations, by the way. Two, two pet peeves that, that I have, and I'm sure you have many that I do to you, but two pet peeves that I have is when people get up and say a reading from Acts. That's like a, a reading from the letter of 1st Pete. Okay? It's the Acts of the Apostles. The other is revelations. Okay? It's revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ to St. John the Apostle. Okay, so it's the revelation, okay? Um, uh, Revelation almost didn't make it into the canon. Not because it wasn't received by the whole church as being the word of God. People believed, yes, it's the word of God. Yes, it's true, okay? But they were concerned, particularly in the East, they were concerned because it was written in a certain genre, it had a a certain, what they call, apocalyptic literature, okay, it was written in a certain way, they were concerned that if Jesus didn't come soon, that later generations might misinterpret Revelation. Okay. They were right about that. Uh, I'm thinking, how far off could they have been, right? So, um... Ultimately, it was received into the canon, but with some reluctancy by most of the Christians in the East, who to this day in Eastern Orthodoxy, and I don't think they're right on this, I think they're wrong on this, but it's an interesting thing to note. They do not read Revelation in the Divine Liturgy. Okay? Now, I would argue that's the place to read it because you can expound upon it, right? But they don't read it because for centuries, of course, people, they would only hear scripture because they couldn't read. They didn't have the Bible. And if they did, they probably couldn't read anyway. And so they would only hear scripture in church, and that's how they avoided it, okay? Um, And that's somewhat problematic because some people interpret that what is canonical is partly identified by how it's used. Is it used liturgically in the church? Okay, so that becomes somewhat problematic. But Revelation almost didn't make it in, not because it was believed to be an error in any way or to fall uh, grievously short in some way, but because they were afraid of misinterpretation uh, of it at uh, some point in, in the future. And so on the one hand, you can see that the extreme evangelical position is wrong. Jesus did not hand us the King James Version of the Bible, leather-bound with his words in red, and say, or a list, here's what the 27 books of the Bible are going to be when they're written, okay? Keep this under a rock, and then the Archangel Moroni will pull it out for you, okay? That's not what happened. But neither is the extreme Catholic position that, you know, the bishops got together in a room, in a council, and said, we're going to pick what books are biblical, Okay, and because we chose what books are biblical, we have a higher authority than the, the canon of Scripture and how it should be applied to the church. No, the truth is that the Holy Spirit was breathed into the body of Christ at Pentecost, and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, these books were written and were received by the whole church east and west by those who were faithful to the apostolic faith as rightly articulating the apostolic faith as being written by or in the name of one of the apostles and being received by the whole church. That being the the three uh, criteria. Uh, And then, you know, it emerged. But on the other hand, it really wasn't until the fourth century that the canon exactly as we have it today was articulated. And it was articulated by Athanasius in the 300s. These are the 27 books. But on the other hand... Uh, all the lists that go back to the early church have most of the books. They just may have a couple that are missing, like Revelation and Hebrews, or they may have an additional book added, like First Clement. But so, in one sense, it's much earlier than the fourth century where we get it. But in another sense, it isn't solidified until the the middle 300s. Okay, but really. The Catholic bishops didn't sit around and just decide what books were going to be in there. They affirmed what was revealed by uh, uh, the Holy Spirit within the life of the Christian community from the time of the apostles to their present day. They gave affirmation to what was believed in the church. Just like the creed, people will say to me in seminary, I remember in seminary, it drives me crazy, they say, oh yeah, you still believe in the Trinity? (laughs) <laughs> that 's so archaic, you know the trinity wasn uh, 't wasn 't even thought of as a concept until three hundred eighty one by a bunch of Catholic bishops. No, what the church did in articulating the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed was they articulated, they affirmed, they ratified, they solidified, they gave a fuller articulation or expression to what was believed in the church in every age of the church going back to Christ and the apostles. So basically, if you took, let's say you take the language of the Fourth Ecumenical Council regarding the person of Christ. It says, there is one person of Jesus Christ in two natures. He is perfectly divine and perfectly and fully, fully divine and perfectly and fully human apart from sin. The two natures are neither to be confused to the point where you lose the distinction of the natures, nor divided to the point where you lose the oneness of the person. Okay, all true? Yes. All biblical? Yes. Does it rightly articulate anew in that century what the church has always believed? Yes. Okay, but now get back into, get into a time machine, go back in time to Peter, and he's fishing just after Pentecost. Peter, St. Peter, St. what? what? So, Jesus, one person, two natures, fully God, fully human, the two natures neither being confused to the point where you lose their distinction nor divided to the point where you lose the oneness of the person. Do you have any more worms (laughs) that I can use? He wouldn't have a clue the way you're articulating it. You're you're giving a 4th century articulation to what has always been believed. But in his heart, and in his writings, and in his preaching, does he preach the one person of Jesus Christ who is fully God and fully man apart from sin? Yes. So they are giving voice to, solidifying, articulating anew what the church has always believed. So the Catholic extreme regarding the canon of scripture is wrong, that these men, these bishops sat around in the the room, like I said before, how about Mark? I'll give you Mark if you give me Matthew. Well, we talk about it. Uh, how about Luke? Luke, come on, Luke. He's always going off, got to be nice to women all the time. You know, we don't want that guy in there. Let's get a little Paul in there. He's not as nice. <laughs> that's not how it happened, okay? Although there's a good skit in there. But anyway, there's, but anyway, that's not how it happened. They affirmed what the Holy Spirit had revealed within the Christian community going back to the Apostolic Age, Okay. Um, and the other extreme is to be avoided. Questions on avoiding the two extremes and how the canon of Scripture actually emerged.
1: Hypothetical question? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, we are almost certain we don't have all, all of Paul's letters. In fact, it's, like it's implied in First, Second Corinthians that there's a, there's a letter that's missing.
0: Um, yeah, it's implied. And some think that that was likely one of the letters, and but but yeah, that we do have. But suppose one word to find, you know, where I go with this. Yeah, I do. I love this question, actually. Okay, yeah. uh, I don't always love your questions, Bob. But I like this one. Suppose one word to find uh, these days just happens to find and yeah somehow could authenticate could authenticate
1: it beyond any dispute that one had another letter of Paul. Um, And, in fact, the church, East and West, their scholars looked at this and said, yep, this looks like, perfectly like Paul. It answers a lot of questions that we've been asking for the last 2,000 years about what Paul meant about something. Does that,
0: does the canon open up
1: for another letter from Paul?
0: Everyone understand the question? Okay. Here's the answer. First of all, It's very hypothetical because to authenticate, finding it would be the miracle. A greater miracle would be authenticating it that this is actually Paul because you don't have the church affirming we receive this as either being Paul or rightly articulating Paul's teaching, Paul's doctrine, his gospel as he actually calls it. So in one sense, this is completely hypothetical because it really actually could not happen. What could happen is a letter found that's claimed to be Paul. But in in Bob's question, uh, what what makes it more enticing is that somehow it's authenticated. Now, there's there's the real issue, right? There's going to be people that would disagree with my position, but my position would be that Okay, if somehow you could authenticate that it was Paul, I still would say you cannot have it be equal to the canon. I would say that the canon is closed and that for some reason under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, this letter was not received by the whole church as back then as being canonical and was lost. However, I would receive it into the realm of like First Clement and say, this is awesome. Let's read this because it gives us further insight in our lens, and where it doesn't contradict anything in in the scripture, um, we can certainly rejoice in in that. But if there was something in it that said, "Well, you know, Bob Cummins is divine," we would have to, <laughs> we would have to reject that, Bob. And uh, um, so, uh, but I would say that there would be people that would argue with me and say, "No, if somehow we could authenticate." that it was Paul, it should be in the canon. But I would argue that it's not because Paul wrote something that makes it the Word of God, but that it was received by the Christian community under the guidance of the Holy Spirit as being the Word of God that makes it the Word of God. So I would say that the canon is forever closed. However, it could be added to the deposit at that secondary level of holy tradition and give us wonderful things to talk about probably till we died, and I probably wouldn't want to die as quickly because I'd want to be talking about the content of, of that letter. Well, you know, Archdeacon, I don't
1: always like your answers to my questions, <laughs> but
0: I have to agree with you on that. All right, all right, good rebuttal by good rebuttal by the way. Let's take a break.